and uh, I went to the toilet and suddenly got trapped in there with two guys who wanted to, me to take pictures with them. of James Bond, post-apocalyptic gumshoes and the Kiwi blacksmiths of tomorrow. All in this 23rd midnight video with your hosts me Jim Hall and me Phil Walsh. Tonight Sean Connery puts history on trial and lends a hand to the Russian film industry in epic polar adventure The Red Tent. A pair of obsessive Raymond Chandler fans find life tough going after the mushroom cloud gives them radioactive dreams. And a band of hardy medieval northerners face a very long journey in their efforts to thwart the Black Death in Vincent Ward's The Navigator, a medieval odyssey. I'm 40, still. I saw it in its style. <laughs> oh yeah, you were in Gay Paris, weren't you? I was being not gay in <laughs> yeah. Gay Paris. You didn't go to Club Rectum then? What? <laughs> in, like, in Irreversible, that's set in Paris. It opens with Club Rectum. I was vaguely looking for a Club Silencio. <laughs> uh, no, the, my film references didn't go quite that far. Um, no, I saw it in In Style watching The Blood on Satan's Claw on an iPad. What an Englishman. Yeah, no, that was. <laughs> I uh, very much enjoyed that whilst uh, Paris was going on around me. <laughs> Although I was on the plane over. And you know they give you free papers at the airport. Yeah, I did Express. find um, worse than that. I'm oh. afraid <laughs> I won't name it because they pay my mortgages. But uh, <laughs> my mortgages, my mortgage thing. <laughs> um, there was an advert in there um, for something you you may know. It's it's under lots of different titles though. But it's kind of basically um, it's it's called the slang kit. Oh yes. It said with the winter months coming, why not cut down on fuel bills with the slang kit? And it's kind of a, a fleece covered blanket with. Um, it called it a foot pocket and two sleeves and it was selling this to you as you know you can talk on the phone you can work a remote control and I just thought it was kind of a nice you know giving up on life uh, kind of product you know just, yeah. just really trying to get the inertia going on in your life <laughs> but I did find myself looking at, at that and thinking yeah, yeah this sounds good this sounds this, good this is what I want for my for you um, certainly as, as, as the, the lights dim on my life yes that's <laughs> where I think I'll be going can't do anything, General. Battery is dead. Like us. History, or Wikipedia at least, tells us that Umberto Nobili led a disastrous Italian expedition by airship to the North Pole in 1928, leaving Nobili and members of his crew stranded with little hope of rescue. The real General Nobili was still alive in 1969, and it's just possible that Russian-Italian co-production the Red Tent in which the events are restaged starring Peter Finch, Hardy Kruger, Claudia Cardinal and Sean Connery as ghost putting nobly on trial in his dotage isn't quite how he'd like to be remembered. Mr Walsh, indeed, a recommendation from you <laughs> which um, I was intrigued by when you sent this thing through the Red Tent I looked it up with the year, Sean Connery in a Russian financed, well I just thought it was going to be a Russian movie but it's kind of a Russian their involvement's mostly the financial side of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a European movie. With a heavy slant towards Italy. And Russia as well. Well, um, considering that uh, Mikhail Kalatazov um, directed it, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's definitely that Russian feel to it. <laughs> Whatever It's that painted is. in a red sort of light. <laughs> and it's got Ennio Morricone all over it, which... Is um, great. It's great. It's one of his very romantic soundtracks. 
um, the first thing I'll say about this is like I say I had no idea what it was about mm. um, and it takes about 15 minutes before the titles come up isn't it it was almost like one of those old Monty Python's fine circus when they were trying to see how long they could leave the titles before the credits would come on immediately afterwards but yeah quite a long preamble with um, kind of mock news footage filling in the audience on uh, Noble's previous expeditions and this new one and yeah very much sold as a Sean Connery film is that unfair? No no his first in the credits and obviously he was and on IMDB I think he he crops up first as well and yeah he crops up in like a 20 second I'm not even sure whether to call it a cameo because it's kind of there's a little bit with him in that preamble yeah Yeah. but then he doesn't turn up again for well over an hour a pretty bizarre movie well for people who don't know it's it's based on real events disastrous arctic expedition as per usual but they were (laughs) they were doing it in a you sound very blasé about (laughs) it (laughs) but they were doing it in a blimp of all things you know that was pretty cutting edge at the time. I mean that that oh, yeah. adds something a bit Jules Vernish, doesn't it? it yeah, it's very exciting uh, and romantic. Um, but yeah, like you say, it was a real historical event, not one I was familiar with at all, though. And I don't no. think that's just my ignorance this time. I think that's no, but I think also maybe because of the time um, uh, fascism was on the rise in Italy. Um, yeah, it's probably something that's been sort of yeah. um, suppressed. Because a little bit of research on this, nobly in real life um, was notorious for having a real go at Benito Mussolini. Mm. I think about conditions on one of the previous expeditions. But yeah, this is a complete blank slate for me. I had no idea uh, about the. Um, it wasn't until afterwards I looked it up and realised this was a historical. It did have an air as it was going along that the, the story was so odd. Yeah. Of the expedition, not so much this other framing device. <laughs> They thought, yeah, this must be some attempt to take reality and um, try and get it to work as a as a two hour film, two yeah. hours plus. But yeah, the the thing we really need to talk about is this framing device of well, ghosts, or I think it's more likely they're aspects of his memory, aren't they? But yeah, no, it's yeah. it's like a, it's a courtroom setup, isn't it? Although quite how anyone gets their um, yeah. ranking in there, because that seems quite <laughs> random until mm. the end, and it's not like anything's going to happen to him. I think it's very much meant to be Peter Finch's character, mm. uh, nobly. Yeah, just trying to come to terms with his demons, because without revealing too much yet, it's a disaster. He and his men, it's probably like a dozen of them, um, yeah. are stuck out on the ice, no hope of rescue. Um, I'm not sure if we should say too much about this, but when inevitably someone does come to rescue them, I say inevitably because there wouldn't be a film otherwise, <laughs> Um, something very odd happens there which this is a problem because this is an historical event and you're not sure how much you are being um, how how fictionalised it is Mm. I would say highly fictionalised because it's giving very specific motives to historically real people uh, which was a bit of a problem I mean especially that piece well the main problem here is that there's a big um, controversy about nobly as the leader of the expedition being the first man out when he should have stayed till probably the end um, the bitter end yes <laughs> um, although this wasn't his fault you know well it no was, I mean the, I mean, the way because I don't want to explain too much about it but yeah the problem is that you have this opening with this uh, nobly's jury and judge and prosecutor defendant in his mind and then the film just sort of cracks on with what was going on in the past and you you kind of forget about that and you're waiting you see these characters crop up in the the past you know <laughs> what was actually happening 
and you're wondering what relevance does this have to that opening section exactly, at all? Yeah, the opening is Peter Finch as an old man uh, in con- contemporary Italy, I guess, uh, mm. in 1969, watching coverage of the expedition on TV. Then these ghosts appear. It's made clear they're either ghosts or memories because they materialise. But there's Hardy Kruger as this old aviator, mm. um, Claudia Cardinal looking like Mary Portis for a British viewer. Yes. She's got this very <laughs> precise sort of hennet bob, hasn't she? Yeah, but it's uh, very much her. You recognise her, yes. Who yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looks fantastic, um, and various members of the uh, the expedition. Then, Nobly becomes a young man again, and you know I'm not. So this is, this makes me convinced it's happening in his head. But when Claudia Cardinal's character appears and sees the guy who was her lover uh, at the time of the expedition, we then get a flashback to them meeting, and this mm. is before the credits have happened. And it does seem like. You're used to seeing films doing that a little more skillfully, introducing the exposition, whereas mm. to stop and say, I need to show you how these characters met before we even get on with this peculiar <laughs> opening to the film, you know. Well, this was an issue, apparently, for Kalatazov, because the Italian producer who was going out with Cardinale at the time Lucky wanted... He wanted more screen time for her. Yeah, apparently that was a whole subplot of the mistress, and I don't think that was too historically accurate, was it? Um, it was more that they had to sell it as this, yeah. you know, um, love against the odds kind of yeah, thing. And I indeed, she it. does drive a lot of the action in this, doesn't she? There are lots of good things about this. It's a, it does look like an historical epic, doesn't it? It, it, it does. really fulfills all of those um, criteria. You know, it, it's so great seeing this airship going over the Arctic wastes. Yeah, no, I think that he does an incredible job with some really like amazing technical trickery, particularly when they have the the disaster happens. You know, the 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 bottom of the airship separates from the other half, and body. it just <laughs> comes back, and it's it's really disturbing because you have in the foreground is one of the people who's still on the uh, airship, and you just my heart was sort of in my throat. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> that's really disconcerting. But you must have been pleased that uh, Noble is dog. Survived. <laughs> oh, I thought, yeah, it's, it's just old, old school, isn't it? That you know, you need a bit of a, you need an animal there to sort of keep the humanity. Ironically, yeah, you don't know. shoot the dog. Yeah, so uh, yeah, there's a chance everything will be alright if the dog survived. <laughs> but yeah, those those scenes are already well done, and obviously there's so much drama there when you've got this bunch of guys stuck out in the middle of nowhere. Um, set at a time when technology was kind of outreaching itself it always is obviously but in terms of these guys are really going out to the extremes of the world Mm. the chances of locating these guys is just practically zero isn't it and I thought all that was the part of the film that really interested me and I think it probably should have been more focused I mean this maybe isn't too helpful but the nearest thing I can think to this is uh, the movie Alive the Andes team who sort of and they resort to cannibalism. Yeah, you know. I can't say that was a film that knocked me out, but I remember watching it and getting very involved in it because you really get to spend time with those guys and understand how desperate the situation is, and you know, not hearing anything on the radio, and you know, there's no chance of surviving. Mm. I think if you're doing this, that's the usual way of doing it. And I think it's probably the best way. You need to get the audience to really empathise with the guy's plight, whereas. This, as we've sort of touched on, keeps cutting back to uh, Claudia Cardinal and her attempts, and kind of there's almost a there's almost a sort of romantic subplot with her and Hardy Kruger, isn't there? Not quite, but it's kind of I think it's trying to do too many things. It yeah. should have focused itself. The thing is that these characters that are like lost out there actually there's so much potential for them, and it's kind of wasted because you have people like Mario Adorf 
who plays Piaggi, the radio operator, and he's this larger in life Italian yeah. character who and resourceful is and re- exactly yeah. yeah he he brings so so much interest to what's going on on the screen, and then you know you so, that it dissipates when it goes yeah, back. That scene should have been incredible when they've given up on getting the radio to work but they managed to sort of bodge something together with graphite from the pencil yeah. but you, you haven't gone through that process with them you've kept cutting back to um, Cardinal I don't want to blame her but it's, <laughs> it's uh, it is how the film's made but it's that, a flaw it's, um, no that, that has only just occurred to me that what's meant to be driving this presumably then is Cardinal and her lover who she only met for a few weeks which is kind of emphasised at the end of the film but he doesn't come across as anything at all, does he? Is this very anemic character, you know, personality-wise? So yeah, if you're meant to be, if the thing that's meant to be keeping your heart in your mouth is this sort of undying love, that that's why she's going around to these guys and pretty much asking them to not quite commit suicide, but not far off when she's trying to get Hardy Kruger and later the Connery character to to risk their lives to go after these guys. You want you want to feel there's a real there's something incredible behind that, whereas it seems like a sort of two week romance in a hospital well yeah it's lacking it's yeah. really lacking yeah. Um, his character is bizarre because he just spends most of his time talking about quoting people like Connery's character Armisen or Nobly yeah. who then uh, cardinally later will go up to uh, certain people and say oh well Finn would say this yeah. about you or yeah, to try and, this. and it's bring like, them around yeah it's like you, yeah, you're you're building or you're pinning all your hopes on this character who you just really I felt very vanilla towards. You yeah, know? absolutely. And um, we 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 should probably mention Connery now. So so he's playing. Sorry, remind me of the character's Roald name. Roald Amundsen. Again, real historical character, but um, he's very much a contemporary of Nobly, and they were kind of they admired each he other. Conquered the North yeah. Pole, didn't he? Yeah. So. so he's kind of his nearest, not rival, but you know. I think they were admirers of each other in yeah. you know, adventurous terms. It is very odd to see him in this, to think that this was at the height of his James Bond kind of star. Um, he just left for the first time. Um, he's in very bad old man makeup here, isn't he? With his hair kind of uh, yeah. yellowed rather than greyed, isn't he? It? Well, it's it's quite of, it's funny because of... I watched uh, Thor the other day. And, right. Uh, uh, Estelle and I were saying those can't be his real eyebrows like Chris Hemsworth eyebrows are so yellow and then I was watching the red tent I was like yeah no it's the same makeup <laughs> some things don't move on do they but um, <laughs> as we know for, for several shows now you've been doing these film strips on the um, IS site I'm hoping as still you'll be able to get is Connery when he turns up sitting oh yeah he's got his um, he's got his dumbbells to begin with <laughs> but for very um for major parts of his scene, he has like one very big scene when Cardinale is very cold with him, and yet, as you say, he's trying to say, you know, my boyfriend would say this about you, and, mm. so, and he's very resistant. He's sitting at a harmonium, like a real cut price Captain Nemo, between a stuffed polar bear cub and a stuffed penguin, and it really just seems like such great visual shorthand for how do we show this guy's an incredible polar explorer. <laughs> It's lovely, yeah. and I'm wondering what because I know at this point Connery was um, yet yeah, trying to get away from James Bond, maybe trying to break that typecasting. And I know when he came back for Diamonds Are Forever, he gave his fee entirely to um, it was like a Scottish education charity. This may have been him starting to do a lot of that stuff. I don't right. know if the idea of working in this uh, in, a, in a, the Russian film industry was a sort of real uh, punk in the eye to the whole James <laughs> Bond image. 
Um, <laughs> it's Consuspector. <laughs> but um, again, without spoiling it, he has a major role at the very end, the ghost of Sean Connery. Um, but some of the dialogue there is so choppy, and you're wondering what he must have been thinking when he was reading that script out. I find that whole scene quite strange because, again, you know, you, you're trying to put your invest your emotions into Cardinale's uh, pleading of um, on behalf of her boyfriend, who you just don't. I don't care about don't that really romance. Care. I don't yeah. think there is a romance there. I think there's a. And then he'll just come back with, "Oh, oh you know, no shame," yeah. yeah, to her as though it doesn't sound unreasonable what she's asking, but. He, he goes through these like re- unreasonably heightened emotions it's like mm. well is that deserving well, yeah and it ultimately <laughs> it concludes with he's sitting at his harmonium uh, just as she's leaving and he says tell me if I die doing this will you be will you feel responsible yeah. she goes no good and wonders off <laughs> and, he's like, good. and I'm thinking that is he will go if he knows she won't be guilty about it you know but oh I was thinking was he was going to start playing <laughs> Um, so yeah I think you watch the same cut as me which is a shade over two hours apparently there's a much longer version which has a lot more scenes with Russia uh, involved I was going to say the scenes with Russia anyway are hilarious they they just seem slightly crowbarred into show as like the great red nation who can save everyone else yeah Russia's very sunny in this film isn't it given we've got polar expeditions (laughs) Russia is all cornfields everyone's having a great time hanging out with uh, (laughs) Horseback and this incredible kind of um, like zither music or something going on. Um, yeah, that was Crowbar, and it's hilarious because you know they financed it, and so they had to have this very positive um, uh, representation. Of yeah, it. I mean, even the credits at the end, they all begin with thanks to Russian, thanks to Russian executives, yeah. producers, uh, military people, what have you. Um, yeah, I suppose we can look back on it and, and laugh now, but. Yeah, I mean, it was built at the height of the Cold War. Uh, it was built, it was made at the height of the Cold War, um, which is quite fascinating. Right, so this is this has vanished. I'd never heard of it. Not that that's a great measure of the <laughs> films. Uh, <laughs> you just say. Um, I'm not going to say deservedly so, but can you see why this isn't something that was on TV as a, when you were a kid? Yeah, Given definitely. it's a big cast and it's obviously had a lot of money pumped in, it's a, it's a skillfully made, um, certainly in terms of the visuals, yeah. the storytelling bit lacking yeah I just would I wanted more of just like the guys on the ice going yeah. through the shit I think um, that was a major problem with it. and I just I really need to say I forgot to say but I thought Peter Finch was really lacking as well considering yeah. he was the main well Connery's the main draw but he is in the film for he's most carrying of it. the film he's the main character his name is in a red box at the beginning as yeah. well weirdly and this is it because I think most people know Peter Finch as Howard Beale in Network, which was absolutely an incredible performance, and he seems just very low key in this throughout. Um, which he is possibly in go on. I was going to say an anemic um, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, he had that kind of thing. Uh, although that, we know Plummer can pull out the stops. Well, exactly, <laughs> but that's what I mean. You know, you 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 know this actor, this great actor with so much potential, but he just that never mm. seemed to be tapped into. I mean, yeah, the only thing I'd say about that is really at the at the heart of this film is the idea of responsibility if you're in charge of men is a general here so maybe he shouldn't be playing it as this sort of I don't bend in the rules maverick or something but um, yeah he just seems too stoical and accepting of things in this. Yeah. you know he's spending 
like I think a major scene with his with him is just him wandering around with a stick and a flat cap on. Yes, yeah. You know, that's like his big tour de force <laughs> performance in this. Um, yeah, just before we finish, I mean, the, the, there are a lot of things to enjoy about this and to recommend it, um, but there's one standout scene for me, which is one of the characters committing suicide. Uh, I don't know if you want to include this there, but... Um, sure, yeah, Margaret. Yeah, when, when, a, when some of the guys just realise they're not going to make it. But it's extraordinary, rather than just the usual, I'm slowing you down, leave me here. It's amazing that he kind of strips down to his long johns and sort of digs out a hole for himself to speed the whole process up. Yeah, and he's... And the guys stay Swedish, with him. I think, yeah. or Norwegian, and... He's, he's Norwegian. He's Norwegian. And he's, um, he's an atheist, and he's been trying to uh, cover ground with that uh, two Italians and <laughs> they're like one of them's baptizing him against his will as he's dying that's yeah <laughs> that like, really wow. is quite a frightening scene isn't it, it is but yeah it's the one with, a, with a piece of ice not even like exactly water. it's a bizarre scene but it it's one of the f I think it stands out because it's one of the few times you get a genuine emotion in it and mm. a sense of really identifying with the characters and thinking Thank God I'm not in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wake up screaming that Italians are trying to baptize me. <laughs> the dog, the dog, Tina's alive. Your dog's alive, General. <laughs> the A to Z of movies through midnight video trundles through the night. It does like twenty tons of robotic terror. <laughs> Giles. M is for Midnight Run. Funniest, most buddy cop movie of the 80s. Second only to The King of New York as De Niro's most deft performance. King of New York? That can't be right. What's going on? That's walking. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Giles knows what he's talking about. He must be thinking of... Um, plip, 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 plip. <laughs> What's he called? <laughs> King um, of Comedy. Oh, God, yeah. Hey. What's he called? Pliskin, no, that's Snake. Pliskin, Pliskin, no, that's Escape, Escape from New, to New, York. New York. King and King of Comedy is Rupert Pupkin or something. Pupkiss, yeah, Pupkin, Pup I think. Kiss. It? No, it's Pupkiss. Pupkin, I think. Are you thinking of Stanley Ipkiss in the mask? Oh, I might be. Look, wow, we've got into we've got into a shame <laughs> spiral already. <laughs> I like this. This is so this Giles. Is Giles, <laughs> M is for Midnight Run, funniest, most buddy cut movie of the eighties, second only to. King of Comedy is De Niro's most deft performance. Giles again is N is for Necronomicon, the Lovecraft movie that never gets mentioned, despite being just as fun and fantastical as Stuart Gordon's Reanimator and From Beyond. Anthology thrills and gory spills with Jeffrey Coombs as Lovecraft himself, reading stories from his leather-bound book of death. The Lovecraft movie that never gets mentioned, the one that usually does, is the Dunwich Horror. Have you mm. watched that yet? I haven't. I've got it, but... Yeah. Still not mm, okay, um, Giles again. This isn't like Giles is the only listener out there. Um, He's just but no, at doing we've, ju we've just done a clot of, uh, of Giles <laughs> suggestions. <laughs> and my goodness, this one sounds good. O is for Out for Justice. Not quite a dizzyingly entertaining as Under Siege to Dark Territory. I think he means King of, King of Comedy there. Isn't he? <laughs> uh, this is the most mindlessly brutal. <laughs> and whips snap sharp at Seagal film of his early classic period. <laughs> I didn't know there was uh, <laughs> an early classic period. Topped off by an astonishing performance by of almost Al Pacino levels of mania by the redoubtable William Forsyth. Anyway, 
Giles isn't our only listener. Glenn T. Chapman, thank you very much. Uh, Monster Squad, a film I watched so many times in my childhood, I went through two ex-rental VHS copies. Noonan is incredible. Monster Squad. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I haven't seen it since... Yeah, I was you thirteen. <laughs> I was thirteen or so, but uh, it was yeah. It was. I remember it being really popular amongst like all our friends at school and stuff. But Glenn, I was chatting to him on Twitter, and he was saying that there's Chapman no, the yeah, there's no, uh, there's no UK Blu-ray release for this. Mm. Um, there is a region free US release, and it's being shown at the Prince Charles soon. Yes, no, because it's one of these things which. Um, I was probably a bit too old when it came out. Yeah. I think it's probably more if you were 13, 14, yeah. whereas I was really old. I was like 17 or something. I think I was like 12, 13. Um, but yeah, no, it does have. It does seem to have a good reputation, a bit like Labyrinth, which is another film like that, which I still haven't seen. But well, I love the fact that someone decided to... Uh, what was it, late 80s, early yeah, 90s? 88-ish. Okay, so... Oh, God, I, I would have been like 8 then, 8 or 9. <laughs> Yes, you would. I would have been a lot younger than I thought. Um, decided to say, "Hey, look, look, we're uh, we're just coming towards the end of this decade of absolute madness with horror just going left, right, and centre." Well, this is where it all came from. <laughs> like, look at these guys. But no, that reminds me, you've just got hold of a big box set of Universal movies. Although yeah. it came with something a little bit extra special. No, it didn't. Didn't it? No, I it was. You said it had. Um, oh, the busts. Yeah. All right. What yeah. could be special? <laughs> I was thinking of the other uh, oh, nice little DVD I got yes. where I got the Horror Express poster. But yeah, the Universal Monster Legacy Collection box set with the bust of Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and thirteen films. So it's lovely. Can I take you on to work through those? Probably. I might have a little borrow. Yeah. Has of it course. got Werewolf of London? I think it does, yeah. Interesting. Pretty sure it does. Interesting one. I like to know what you uh, think of that. <laughs> and Glenn again, Marx Brothers, anarchic and relentlessly funny, starred in a number of comedy masterpieces and were kings of their era. Yeah. I, I, Brilliant. I, I don't know how to add to the Marx Brothers, really. They, they I think there's enough of them. Down. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what were you hoping to audition for them? <laughs> Uh, no, I'm a big fan of the Marx Brothers. I think in Germany they were later to become the Euro Brothers. <laughs> you goofy bastard. <laughs> Marie Hepworth, hello Marie. I have to be a bit greedy for K. K's for Klaus Kinski. How's this for an understatement? A bit crazy. Sometimes amazing and always ready to appear in any old shite if the money was right. <laughs> K's for Buster Keaton. His silent films are still incredible, my favourite being Sherlock Jr., case for Takeshi Katano not to be confused with Kerry Katana uh, <laughs> actor, director, comedian, writer, poet painter and owner of a breeze block castle. Is there anything he can't do? Um, yeah that was quite greedy but you know, <laughs> it's okay have your fair share of K's there. That's KKK though. <laughs> Did three K's uh, Oh that would be good for Is a few shows from now won't it? Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> going back to Kinski would do any old shite if the money was right. Um, well, it's hard to argue with that, although, according to his memoir, what was it called? Kinski and Kurt. And Kurt yeah. yeah. He wanted to make sure no one thought he was Jewish. <laughs> um, he was offered Raiders of the Lost Ark and turned it down, which I just find incredible, given some of the crap he did do, like Venom. Yeah. Have you seen that? I Kinski haven't. and Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, yeah. Oh, man. Um, 
Raiders would, Raiders is so fantastic anyway. But if he'd been in it as well, I'm not sure if he would have played which of the three major villains in it. It would have been because Paul Freeman is pretty good as the as Belloc in it. He's, Paul Freeman's great and um, Ronald Lacey yeah, the Ronald Gestapo Lacey. guy. Yeah, uh, Tot. I don't really know how he could have been wedged in there. To be honest, I think he would have wedged the others out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, he'd have been great as the Gestapo guy. The thing I wish Kinski had done, I've no evidence that he was offered this, but um, Spy Love Me is one of the best James Bond movies, but it has one of the blandest villains, uh, Stromberg, who's yeah. such a sort of, oh, we can't get Blofeld for copyright reasons. We've got to get this guy in, who's, uh, was it, uh, Kurt Jurgens. Mm-hmm. If it had been Kinski, oof. That would have been great. Oof. That, yeah, that's. Wow, I never even considered that. That would have yeah. been awesome. No, Kinsky's great. Uh, I love Kinsky. Regardless of everything he's done, including trying to fuck his own daughter. And from Rich Sampson, we have a K. King, as in Stephen. This is a weird one because 90% of his films are akin to putting a flat round turd in your DVD player. But with recent examples like The Mist, it just shows the potential his material has for great movies. Add to that the hot of the press news about a film of The Stand... And you have an author who could finally get the filmic treatment he deserves. If only Dan Simmons could get the same. Uh, he put in bracket, that's for me. Because yeah, you're a big fan of him. Well, I remember you rattling Simmons. on about him when, I, uh, <laughs> when we both started at that shop. Yeah, uh, Simmons is Daman. But yeah, King, yeah, what a weird one. Um, he's... Dollar baby stuff's quite interesting. I mean, that's we a great idea them, in itself. We? we should explain what those are. Aren't it's, uh, um, he sells his rights to his books for yeah, a dollar to like filmmakers. Yeah, but it's it's kind of the student, minimal. It's, it's rather what? like I don't know if I want to compare it to this, but rather <laughs> like when O.J. Simpson appeared on Richard and Judy for one pound or something. You know, it, it was a very uh, it was a token payment. But yeah, we saw that at um, Joshua's film night. There was a sort of one based on Children of the Corn, wasn't it? Where King had just taken one dollar for the rights because he wanted to encourage, you know, the filmmakers. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Well, Stephen King wise, the The Shining is always Running Man. <laughs> Writing yeah. is Richard Bachman. Do you know what I want to watch again? I've not seen in ages. Um, Stand by Me. Yeah. That's yeah. good, isn't it? That's a I, bit I remember of it being good recently. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, no, that is good. He's yeah, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile. He's done all these sort of uh, not associated with his name kind of films. Yeah. I mean, they well, have be, they're not horror become, movies. There, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nick Sauer, Ellis for Lynch. I thought for sure you guys would claim this first, as you did that Wild at Heart commentary episode. One of my favourites of his body of, of work as well. Yeah. Eraserhead was one of those key movies that really turned me on to the whole midnight movie genre. Don't want to harp on about this again, but yeah, I, I, I reviewed uh, Eraserhead on the Scottish Review of Books with uh, with my pal Colin uh, a couple of weeks back. But that was, uh, um, it was great to watch that again, because yeah, for me that Eraserhead was something I was really obsessed with as a teenager, um, and I, I really loved it and watched it so many times, to the extent that I haven't watched it properly for about 15, 20 years. <laughs> And to watch it again, and it still really lived up. It wasn't like um, similarly. I did sit down to try and watch Pulp Fiction the other day, and had to turn it off after ten minutes because it's. Wow. I'm sure I will watch it again, but it's something I watched so much when it came out. Oh, I right. almost feel like it, it has negative memories for me now. Of you should have been getting on with other stuff. <laughs> but it's great when something that was a key movie for you when you were younger still holds up after all that time. 
Okay, so thanks for those guys. Keep them coming in. Hi, Alex. Well, son. Yeah, you want tough dick? Oh, you want slick dick. Well, gee, thanks, Bob. If you're gonna make it in a tough post-apocalyptic world of mutants and wild gangs, then dressing as a couple of 30s-style private eyes probably isn't a smart move. But that's very much the game plan of detective fiction and swing music-loving duo Philip and Marlowe in 1985's Radioactive Dreams, with a goofy pair of kids raised in a nuclear shelter boasting very limited cultural exposure, suddenly finding themselves grappling with femme fatales and a race to control the last surviving warhead. Albert Pyun. The man who bought us Dollman. Uh, Sword and the Sorcerer. And looking at his filmography... Cyborg. <laughs> a whole franchise called Nemesis. Other Laguna. Yeah. So, another of your picks. I know, I'm, I'm being quite greedy, aren't I? You are. Yeah, he's a provider of uh, very low-budget entertainment um, action movies, which usually have a smattering of weird comedy. And yeah, I think he was picked up by Toshiro Mifuni, who is more known for starring in Kurosawa's uh, samurai movies. And he got uh, a scholarship, an internship, to work in Japan for a while in think under Kurosawa. I'm not 100% sure about this, whether it's apocryphal or not. And yeah, to some degree this has come out of in some of his films, um, such as Cyborg, where there's some really amazing set pieces that look, you know, there's a lot of skill gone behind this. This is probably the lowest budget film I've seen that he's made. Right. Personally. Sword in the Sorcerer, of, I think he... At a time when there was a lot of that kind of stuff coming out, it was it looked really good, I thought. All I remember of Sword and the Sorcerer is a guy getting his head chopped in half. <laughs> but I have remembered that for 20 odd years. Oh, that, well, yeah. that's pretty good. So that's pretty good. Early days of video, Paul's. Yeah. For <laughs> um, with Radioactive Dreams, he gets the American Ninja and one of the guys from Top Gun together to be Philip and Marlo. And. It's such an uneven, weird film. It, I have not been as confused by another film. I thought Space is the Place was more coherent than this, to be honest. Although Space in the Place was deliberately very roly-poly, wasn't it? Yeah, but... I mean, in terms of tone, um, I'm not going to compare it with this in terms of quality, but Combat Shock, that was one when I didn't know whether it was meant to be played for laughs or was meant to be taking itself seriously. Or yeah. It had me confused plot-wise because... I just didn't really see what what was working <laughs> out where, where where anything was going. It it just didn't, it seemed to be it not rambling. Um, well, no no destination. You know that it, it was like apocalyptical in that sort of yeah. way. It was all the things you would expect from a nineteen eighties post apocalyptic movie. So you do have gangs of kind of punks and mutants. Um, all the gangs seem to be like music orientated. Yeah, like there rockers, was a vague new wave, yeah. new punks. Again, I don't want to say it was as good as this by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but um, the Warriors is going to crop yeah. up because at times the gangs have those identities and like the ways Bronx of dressing. Warriors, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, probably the most stand standout gangs in this. You've got those sort of uh, group of biker women with red wigs. I don't yes. know if all of them are bold, kind of like I think Hasidic Jewish women. Or, or pluck their hair out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they apparently have these red wigs. Um, 
and the what were referred to as uh, disco mutants, is it? <sighs> These sort of kids, foul-mouthed kids, dressed in kind of John Travolta stroke, uh, Scarface kind of, yeah. uh, Tony Montana uh, kind of outfits. Although this is the thing, it probably was a real novelty back in 1984 to have foul-mouthed preteen children, whereas now it's just a bit like you've been down blue water for the day or something. The post-apocalyptic thing was a big genre in the 80s, probably right at the height, height of the Cold War. Mm. Um, but also probably it was quite... Um, I don't know, was it a cheap thing to do? Because you just have to go out to the desert with a few bits of scrap from a yard or something. Uh, Unless you're in Italy where you go to the quarry. Yes. <laughs> um, but also I think there was, it was a time when punk was a very big kind of... Punk had gone, but I think it had put the fear of God into conventional society hadn't it because it was just so bizarre to see people with the, that hair and those clothes well, and it kind of represented the future completely going down of the plug hole but yeah this was made in 1984 and yet that imagery of punk was still very resonant wasn't it even though musically everything was kind of new romantic and stuff at this point We're like a year away from live aid yeah well that Mick Jagger should have been the key musical <laughs> uh, signature at this point Oh, it's good that you bring up the music because the music for this is absolutely terrible. It's, I loved it. It's diabolical. I loved it, and possibly with not too much irony. It's it's everything that like I've been doing another podcast, a musical podcast about stuff, music of the eighties that I I really love, like underground stuff that doesn't get heard enough. This is the exact opposite. <laughs> it. This this typifies everything that I'm trying to like. It's very manufactured, and it's a lot of synth drum, isn't it? In fact, some of the tracks are just entirely synth drum loops. Yeah, but it, But I did oh, enjoy it, but then I'm of an age nightmare, where it's got... <laughs> nightmare! Guilty pleasures! Yeah, oh, which goes on for about ten minutes, doesn't it? a music doesn't video, it? doesn't it? You know, you've got Guilty pleasures! <laughs> it goes on and on, and keeps cutting back to the woman singing it at... <laughs> again, the huge cliche of 80s science fiction the futuristic nightclub where mm. uh, filthy things happen and you've just <laughs> got you know ne'er-do-wells uh, traipsing around but yeah sorry yeah backtracking you're completely right this doesn't really have a plot does it no having come up with this I think a great concept of by this point yeah Mad Max had been around there'd probably be any number of Italian rip-offs of Mad Max to do the post-apocalypse but have at the centre of it a couple of guys who think they're 30s private eyes is a great premise, but what can you do with it? You can't do film noir in a desert with <laughs> with a biker gang, can you? Yeah, because that only all of those other things that go with noir aren't going to be in that environment. So what you've got is just a couple of guys dressed stupidly, and that's just the beginning of my criticisms. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, I think it starts out really promisingly because you've got the first sort of uh, five to ten minutes. Is shot in this very strange black and white. Um, it's almost pixelated. Well, it's black and white, but it doesn't look like it's been done with any skill. It was probably filmed on bad equipment. But yeah. you think if you were going to do it in black and white, especially given the premise of this is that they're thir- they think they're thirties detectives, you'd have done you'd have made some attempt to make it look classy. But it just looks like someone had flicked their video camera over. Well, it's very Tetsuo in that way. Yeah. Um, th- very grainy and they've been living in this bunker and you know it's amazing you get within the first 10 minutes you get all this exposition mm. that the next 80 minutes can't Doesn't do, do anything, anything with. with like it's yeah, like what an absolute waste we've been in this shelter we've been brought up on detective fiction and 30 swing music and you know i think wow we're gonna go with this and uh and the answer's nowhere and going back to the red tent 
I just don't have any involvement with the characters here. You know, I, w- I was talking to you earlier in the in Weatherspoon. <laughs> we should have done the podcast there. Maybe. <laughs> like I say, post-apocalyptic big thing in the eighties, but it usually worked where society is completely under hell, but your main character is someone who's a complete straight arrow. Mm. Mad Max, you know, or there was a series of books. I don't know if anyone remembers these called The Survivalist. <laughs> there was these real pulp things, but he was obviously a no-nonsense kind of military guy. And to have two guys who really don't know what they're doing, you know, this is the first time they've been out of the shelter at all, and there's nothing to be interested in with them. Well, they're they kind of you've got one who's very serious because uh, at the beginning it's it's alluded to that the fathers have put them in this bunker and. One of them has grown up despising his father. The other one, sort of, the, I think one of them him. is like, is it Dash Hammer? Is his Dash name is George one Kennedy? Of the father. George Kennedy, people <laughs> know from a lot of films, but the Naked, Naked Gun. Gun, he was the boss in those, yeah. And so you've got Michael Dudikoff, aka the American Ninja, who Dudikoff. did, I think he started doing American Ninja very shortly after this was made. So, wow. like, towards the end of '84. I've never really liked the American Ninja films. I always found him a bit of an annoying, dull, uh, bland character. But I did. I started out really liking him in this because he was the sort of the dumbass, uh, almost Jim Carrey. I side him. Oh right, okay. he just squeals through the whole film. Yeah. It's so difficult to actually watch it when he's just shrieking all the time. Because I've only known him as this like dumb, bland American oh, so you're, ninja. You're seeing a new side. Yeah, to him. it was like wow, he's actually quite funny. You know, he's like he, you know, there's a few scenes where he's bringing his um, ninja his skills. skills. <laughs> well, no, that's a good one to raise because. Um, very early on, I think the th- the first trouble they run into is with these this biker gang of uh, women in red wigs, and they're kind of on a rig, um, like a flatbed truck, aren't they? Is in trouble there, but to get away, he kind of runs, and I think it's Jimmy Cagney does this in Yankee Doodle Dandy. He runs up a wall. Gene Kelly in um, yeah. Singing in the Rain. Yeah, runs up a wall and backflips, and you think, wow, that looks that looks good, and they go nowhere with it. I thought they must have cast this guy. I didn't know he was American Ninja. Yeah, he doesn't do that throughout the rest of the film, you know until the very end so you've got these amazing outdoor bright scenes after being in this black and white underground bunker and it's all very like you know you're almost breathing with it you're like oh good relief for outdoors and then the rest of the film is in pretty much darkness within this city in the pleasure dome kind of thing and it's so obvious that the budget is low because it's shown on screen that you know they, they can't really do much apart from these little sets that they've built. Yeah, and, I mean, okay, it's a low-budget film, but the more glaring problem is that there is no plot there. It's mm. just it's a bunch of stuff happening around there. They get captured, they escape, you know, there's this thing with the keys. I don't care what's happening, and no. I'm, I'm not engaged with these two characters at all. It's a shame, because I was really looking forward to this film, and the high point for me turned out to be one like a minor character who is in like the rocker gang or something it's called Brick Bardo which is <laughs> yeah. the name of uh, Tim Thomason's character in Dolman mm. and it's used throughout a lot of Pyun's films oh right it's like and so, a Lindsay Anderson moment yeah, right? yeah I spotted I was like wow yeah Brick Bardo and I was like but this is really sad if I'm getting so excited by this yeah. like, one minor character who doesn't have any kind of influence on the rest of the film. So uh, yeah. you weren't taken by the um, inevitable kind of dinosaur thing that crops up? Uh, I, 
I found that really jarring. I was like, what? It was because like they knew that it was, was before that happened, though. That like it was building up with the weird voiced creatures. Yeah, the two, the yeah, duo yeah, yeah. who. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a revelation later. Yeah. But yeah, I just found that really tedious. It felt like they knew they had to have something like that where one of the characters is threatened by it's not a full dinosaur it's kind of the head comes yeah. out of a but it's like they knew they had to have that it was going to cost them a bit so let's save it till we've got this much of the running time out of the way it's just I can't stress this enough I don't care what's happening in it and no that that is a, I, I found myself like drifting off so often mm. that those got to the, zoning out zoning out yeah. um, I mean I was watching it but I was just I found it really hard to engage with anything that was going on and I got more and more lost within <laughs> something that was already lost within itself. What I will say though is um, the end scene, I know it's always a very smart ass comment to make, oh the best thing about it is the end. <laughs> the, the best thing about this is the end I think. When it gets to the finale and you are in this dome full of punks and whatever and things have been sorted out for the moment the two of them then finally break into this dance routine and it's not like brilliant but it's quite fun isn't it it's got a lot of energy to it and it's done it's a bit like I know when uh, Tarantino did Pulp Fiction he said he'd rather watch uh, I can't remember which film it is Abandoned is Abandon Part yeah, yeah when um, he said they're not the best dancers but they're really into it they're trying their best yeah. and it ends with it oh yeah I don't care spoiling it that at the end I thought was brilliant and I was really hoping the rest of the film had had more of that bizarre that's the kind of juxtaposition I wanted of yeah. I know how, what a Mad Max ripoff looks like. I now want you to put this twist on of the thirties private eyes there, you know. But even by that point I was still really underwhelmed because when they broke out into that dance they did uh, some movements that Yeah. You could tell uh, they'd choreographed for uh, like twenty seconds of movement. <laughs> and then repeated it. But also yeah. like Van Damme did it so much better in uh, I think it was Blood Sport where he's drunk dancing in the bar but and then he starts fighting people they do that similar kind of dance but yeah. it, it's not as conceited I don't know the thing is I quite like Albert Pyun's film other films that I've seen by him and I was very close to spending $30 on getting the Albert Pyun cut of Cyborg the other day which you have to buy from him directly wow I like the fact he's turned himself into a cottage industry <laughs> because he Van Damme and the production company just basically took the film away and then re-edited it. But to be honest, it just left me really wanting so much more. Like you say, that that, that premise is great and it just, it just doesn't. You can get imagine delivered. in your mind what it might be, and the fact that they don't even come up with the first. No, I know. The yeah. first things that occur to you just when you read that premise is pretty damning, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Oh dear. No, it's a shame you didn't like that dance routine because I was hoping nah. we could film the two of us doing something <laughs> like that and uh, whack it up on the site. Yeah, no Maybe people would rather live through a holocaust though. <laughs> Marlo, you really are a Mondo nerd. Quiz time. Dun 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 Wow, you're combining a few pieces of music there. <laughs> That's how I roll. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I did this clips quiz and put it on YouTube, and they withdrew Eventually. it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, yeah, <laughs> it was like the rhythm method. You know, I tried, but yeah, eventually it got up on the website, and we, well, we got we got a lot of answers back, but it seemed to be a lot of people just like to take part in it, which is 
exactly what we great. Uh, I don't know how difficult this one was. Like I went through two through uh, Jim's vetting process, and I don't know nothing about no movies. <gasps> this one seemed to be all right. Uh, this was easier than the, the the sort of demo ones you did. Yeah, I but think it, I there was still at least half of them that I just <laughs> what. It's not always about it being obscure, though. Oh, no, it's no, using it's, those it's moments from films that probably anyone who's listened to this podcast will have yeah, likely gives, have seen. And it gives a flavour of the kind of well, thing yeah. we're... And know. it's not that I'm just going back over films that we've done on the show. I did think of doing that. You don't need to apologise. No, no, no. I'm being, <laughs> I'm being very British. You were wonderful, this. darling. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, we had a winner, and... That's Paul K, uh, Paul K UK, who. Well done, Paul. We've mentioned him before because he. Oh, is this the YouTube uh, yeah. Jonathan Ross? <laughs> the YouTube, the Jonathan Ross of YouTube. YouTube yes. <laughs> um, he did a sterling job. Uh, he was quite ready to admit as well that he scratched his testicles and scoured the internet. And he sent us a video of it as well. <laughs> <laughs> to find these answers and by God, yeah, that there's no such thing as cheating. If scratching your testicles and searching the internet will provide the answers, then do it, I say. But yeah, Paul he was he got nine out of ten, which is most impressive. That's more than you got and you actually did the quiz. <laughs> and I'll go through the answers now, but I'll put the answers up on the website as well. So, first one was Get Mean. Got that one. Uh, number two, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Doo doo doo. <laughs> great music, I'm addicted to it. It's just a great film, man. I'm, I'm amazed more people didn't get A lot well, of people tripped up over that. Not many people got that, and I thought it was a bit of a big cult classic, so um, I think we should probably cover that at some point. Number three, The Island. Not Michael Bay's absolute travesty, but the the undeniable classic. <laughs> well, hold on, because I think we should cover that as well. Okay. Um, so let's not um, let's not discuss her um, feelings towards The Island just yet. Okay. But Michael Caine, I mean, what else do you need to know? Number four, uh, one of my favourites, Man Bites Dog. Love it. Absolutely love it. Number five... Stuff. Nil by mouth. Number six was the only one that Paul <coughs> didn't get. Um, he said some Korean movie, <laughs> possibly uh, looks ace. Yeah, it's actually a Thai movie called Tears of the Black Tiger, and that is absolutely one of the most visually stunning pieces of film that I've seen in the last 10 15 years. I think it came out in 2000 or late this is, 90s this is the clip with the bullets yeah yeah that's fantastic it is it is an incredible film everyone needs to go out there and watch that it, I can't recommend that highly enough number 7 A Room for Romeo Brass uh, Shea Meadows Paddy Considine Paddy Const the man who should have been Rorschach after seeing that clip as well, well have, you, have you have you seen A Room for Romeo Brass yeah I've seen that uh, I saw that and then I saw Dead Man's Shoes but I just thought if someone's going to play a Psycho, who's not in a cliched way, it's just really has that feeling of his brain's not connected. That's, yeah, you know, he's, he's nails so good it. At that. Yeah. Number eight, <laughs> one of Midnight Video's favourite films of the last few years, Skeletons. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, did you say the last few years? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant like that. It show came it. out in the last. Yeah, few I years. thought you meant Midnight Video been going on. No. Longer than six. If months. only. And one yeah. of my personal favourites next, Naked. Mike Lee's Naked. Bit of a standout film for him, I think. Mm-hmm. And the last one, um, 
yeah, some people said that this looks kind of dated effects-wise, and I'll agree to some extent, but I just watched, as I mentioned earlier, I watched Thor um, yesterday with my wife, and the sort of Super Mario World, Asgard, Sheeny, it just looks so computer animated. Compared to The Company of Wolves, which yeah. is number 10, the transformation of Stephen Ray's Wolfman is it's still brilliant yeah. even though it is very animatronic it's, it's obvious mechanical effects it's great see, but it's so inventive it is you can the, uh, the stages involved as mm, well mm. Yeah. and yeah you can see it's mechanical but you know all right it's unfair of me to say because i've not seen this new remake stroke reboot of the thing but you just knew from the time it was announced cgi versus mechanical effects especially for a man of my advanced years as I get under my snuggle blanket <laughs> <laughs> with my foie gras. Um, I don't know, I haven't got expectations for the thing, but it is purely that CGI thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, we've said many times, I appreciate to do that takes skill, but the, the, the final result doesn't impress me. No, it's, it's, it's not. It looks homogenised. So, Paul was the winner. Yeah, well done, Paul. Congratulations. Uh, I don't know whether you have a T-shirt, actually. <laughs> After <laughs> all that. Yeah. You might have one anyway, but... Well, there's a DVD or Blu-ray option yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. But the great news is you've got another one ready to rock and roll. Uh, well, I got, I got, I think, four of them this time. He's already, he's already got a T-shirt. I don't know. Going, I don't know. <laughs> um, but no, um, take a look at them. They're fantastic. Uh, it, even if you've no intention of um, entering, just... Get Just that. have a go, yeah. Come and have a go if you think. Come you're and step enough. into the world of midnight video. <laughs> and the last clip, which is me and Phil singing and dancing, and like we're thirties private eyes, is uh, <laughs> private dicks, public dicks. <laughs> I heard a story once about them old pits up behind the mine. You reckon there's a there's a hole up there so deep? If you dropped a stone down it. Sooner or later, it'll fall out the far side of the earth. It's the 14th century, and the Black Death is ravaging Europe. In the frozen wastes of Cumbria, a child with second sight has visions of a tribute to God being the only thing that can save the community. The unlikely heroes of 1988's The Navigator, a medieval odyssey, set out on their quest, tunnelling right through the earth. But what strange land will be their destination? Uh, just a brief word of warning from the disembodied voice of Phil. Uh, when we were recording the podcast at Jim's workplace, uh, one of the cleaners decided to pop in and have a little tidy up. So about halfway through our review of The Navigator, you might get some extra sound effects. Uh, they don't drown out the sound, but just to warn you, enjoy. I think it's fair to say this is a film most people will at least know the title of, um, or most of our listeners, because Vincent Ward was um, in line to direct Alien 3. Uh, on the strength of on this. On the strength of this. Um, so certainly, yeah, going back nearly 20 years now, this is oh, Vincent Ward, the navigator, going to do Alien 3. And I thought, wow, this must be a hell of a film. Um, and to my shame, I didn't watch it till about a year ago. Um, uh, you lent me a copy of it, um, and yeah, I was keen to cover it on this. In fact, I think we've had my apologies because I haven't got your names to hand, but I think we've had a few listeners who've been keen for us to. Um, they have. So, to some extent, this is one of those films where it almost has a reputation for me because I think, wow, this must have been an incredibly impressive piece of work to have that kind of to act as a calling card to 
been to that franchise, even though what? Well, no, James Cameron's reputation was the Terminator and Piranha Two flying killers, wasn't it? But this was always um, I, I had a vague idea of what this was about, and I know Vincent Ward's original ideas for Alien Three. I think he still gets a credit on the end, doesn't he, for he does. uh, script development and whatnot. The original idea, and I think people will know this, was that it was going to be set on a wooden planet with uh, with a religious community of monks. And, um, I mean, that's such a great idea. I mean, I, I love the idea of aliens being this gung-ho military thing and then to go in the absolutely opposite direction. Quite what it would have been, who knows. Although I think there's extensive kind of... I don't know if there's a script there is available. The extras, but there's, it's, yeah. it's insane. How much I know he's it. been interviewed and he seems a very kind of fey chap, doesn't he? He's... Uh, and I know that idea of the, the wooden planet and the monks was kind of coming out of this as well. But anyway, this is a very roundabout way of saying <laughs> my expectations of this were kind of around quite, that. Right. And um, I th- it wasn't quite what I was hoping for, but it is really good. It's, I'm pretty you know, much it, the same. It's crime as it, it wasn't the film I wanted it to be, but it is, it is still very, it's very good. But that's not its fault. Yeah, it's my um, fault for... Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I approached it in exactly the same kind of way. Once I got over the absolutely appalling accents <laughs> on display... They're fairly indecipherable, aren't they? They are Irish, Scottish, pretend Scottish, uh, pretend northerner, <laughs> as in northern England. Because it, uh, the, That's the, where the first from, part of it? the movement is all set in um, the 14th century where you know the plagues come in they've got problems they've got their own little community it's a bit like the Sean Bean movie Black Death recently where there's an isolated community trying to keep themselves away from the plague they figure out that a way to do it is to offer this copper cross mm. to God but to do it at the highest spire in well, this, is, this is a vision by this child uh, yeah. throughout it because the film at the uh, beginning rather, Griffin. Uh, yeah, rather like radioactive dreams uh, yeah. <laughs> is in black and white to begin with and he has these visions in colour of this tumbling flaming torch absolutely striking though yeah. this, I mean I'm going to veer back then to uh, yeah, I mean the imagery is I thought was really quite spectacular throughout which is what you want in low budget filmmaking yeah. if you you know, you want to really make the most of what you've got there. I know, like and when he finished, he said, "I'm never going to make a film <laughs> yes. like this again." It was horrific. Well, better than that, you probably <laughs> read the same thing I did, which was Herzog, who's known for oh, like, yeah. going up volcanoes, <laughs> active volcanoes. Said, "This looks like a very difficult film to have made." But it's true though, because I've been to New Zealand. Uh, yeah. I lived in New Zealand for about half a year, and, and you couldn't a... put a horse on a dinghy there. Could you? <laughs> you had real trouble with it. But there is a scene where they, uh, the camera pans round to these villages medieval villages and there's a volcano in the background a long distance away covered in snow and i've got some idea in my mind like uh, the distances and like the height of places in new zealand and i was thinking they're filming about three thousand feet here mm. you know they're, they're in the middle of nowhere although it's not obvious is it no no you it's know that because so you well, were there whereas yeah. that didn't occur to me i mean when i was reading that Herzog quote i was thinking yeah the visuals in this are great but it wasn't like Fitzgerald or something we're thinking god they must have done that for real there's no other way around that they kind of they kind of were <laughs> they were but that's I don't know I, I now admire it a bit more that mm. I know that because it wasn't like we've got to we've got to be showy about this and like can you believe we went through all this hardship yeah. it was more like we'll do what's what, what's the what's image. necessary yeah yeah and, uh, 
something we should just mention now because uh, yeah there is a significant twist that happens in this half an hour and it's going to be impossible to review this film without mentioning it yeah so uh, if you really don't want to know anything else about this then you know well if you don't want to know anything about this don't even read a synopsis of it yeah because I think it's quite well known what it is but um, you know the they tunnel um, to get to the highest point in Christendom. The highest point in Christendom. Again, it's boys' visions. They come out in modern-day New that, Zealand. That's it. The twist is they come out. <laughs> yeah. they, uh, they find up in the Castro <laughs> district of San Francisco. <laughs> they join the disco gang. Yeah. Just when Rise of the Planet of the Apes is happening. As well. <laughs> but um, yeah, they, 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 they're in New Zealand. They like emerge in modern, modern, modern New, New Zealand, Zealand, which is not... The other side of the world. Yeah, which I can't remember, because I did watch this about a year ago, like I said. I can't remember if I'd heard that already, but it didn't, like, knock my socks off, because it's kind of... It's something I've seen in science fiction before. Um, specifically, I think there's a very old Twilight Zone story which does something like that with some Mexicans. and um, I don't think it's meant to be, like, sort of pulling the rug out from under your feet. No, it is about all. the juxtaposition of... Well, I'll, I'll say it. This is this had some similarities with Quest for Fire, which we reviewed a few uh, shows back. In well, Hollow Rising was, as yeah, well. Um, that idea of and this, this is very helpful. It goes back to uh, the Red Tent. This did do what the Red Tent should do, which is keep specifically on that group of characters and how desperate their situation was. Yeah, and stayed in their minds to the point that you related to them a lot more than you did. There's only a few modern day. Kiwi characters you see in this, but you're much more on the side of the the, the medieval villagers when totally. they see m- machines in action, when they see cars, and they don't think of them as transport. They just think they they don't even articulate it. You just know it from their minds. They just think this is some weird phenomena that's happening. Yeah, it? it's it's really extraordinary because I read that Ward got the idea from he broke down on a German autobahn yeah. and he was stranded like on the median strip in the middle. Which immediately, re- for me, recalled uh, Ballard, J.G. Mm. Ballard's uh, Concrete Island, which is a fantastic yeah. book about a guy in a similar situation. But he manages to draw this out for like a sort of 150-page novella, um, and that was the sort of uh, the spark that that got his ideas going about what what would someone make? Yeah. I know of what this, this is, but yeah, and. I must admit, I was watching this whole film thinking at the end. By the end of it, I was like, "Is there some deeper meaning to it all, really?" And I was very happy to find that he said, "Well, no, it's it's an adventure film. Yeah. It's about people." And I was very, I was so happy to read that because I thought that's why I'm saying he's not so pretentious or up his own arse. Like, he just wanted to make a good, entertaining movie. This is it because I think, uh, yeah. Again, I think we've read the same things. He he wanted to downplay any references to because the, the Black Death is coming for them. In here, I don't know if you noticed this because maybe you're well, you are younger than me. You know, there's the scene when the young boy sees all the TV sets. One of the adverts there AIDS is with the, Burton. Yeah, it's the AIDS. Not Burton. It was John it, Hurt, I think. Oh, was it John the, Hurt? The voice. Yeah. Oh, I, but you get a second Richard of this Burton of the Grim Reaper bowling this yeah. family over, which I remember from the eighties. But he said he didn't want to draw parallels there because, again, you know, he, he knew he could do anything. It's so nice that it's just he came up with that single idea of how would a medieval mind cope with the modern world, and it's the fact that they don't know they've travelled in time for them. They travel to it's just a big city. Yeah, they travel long distances and go to different communities, and they do things differently. And this to them is just like that again. It's uh, 
It's wonderful, yeah. It I, is, I really yeah. like that. Yeah. Because ultimately, it's, a, it's less than an hour and a half, but nothing much really happens, does it? They have that quest. They want to make the cross and put it on the highest point in Christendom, which they you know, they find this church in um, in New Zealand. But they, they get that done. There, there's some adventure along the way, but it's not like things get complicated and they spin it off. It's just... it. Kind of, and it kind of takes its time because I think a lot of the appeal of this is seeing the modern world from old eyes and no because there's actually there's some there's one particular scene that I really have to address which is the train mm. which is absolutely unbelievable for I'm pretty sure this was ultra low budget yeah and oh, there's a scene I think where it's fairly real <laughs> no I don't know if it's real I'm sure it's not real but the 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 group splinter at one point because Griffin is the young boy who's having the images. Um, he's the, the navigator he's the guy leading them through this Exactly. he's like 12 or something isn't he? Yeah. yeah and his older brother is obviously like Connor Connor is like the de facto leader of the group he separates at one point because he, he he feels it's his duty to go and find the church because you know they, they land in this city and it is a city and you know the highest points in that period of time were the church but obviously there's all these modern buildings there now so they can't see what's going on so there's this incredible scene where connor is separated from the group and he ends up in the scrapyard <laughs> you have this it's really um i watched this very odd russian film called four mm. which has been likened to peter greenaway but all of a sudden at the beginning of that film these huge JCB pneumatic drills come down and start drilling into the ground and it just comes out of nowhere and it's like these big crushing fingers from those cranes that pick up the scrap metal and move them yeah. descend from the sky in in an almost like godlike way well, is it rather like the cars earlier you're seeing it from the character's point of view there's no sense that there's any human mind behind them they do just seem like things from fate or something mm. um, and he starts running off in one direction and these big trucks coming towards him so and then he runs in the opposite direction and he sort of backs up against this wall where there are two lamps and I don't know I'm obviously being used to watching films you think uh, why is he in that frame why mm -hmm. is he framed in that manner and then it starts moving. It's actually on the front of a train, which starts going along and gets faster and faster. And like that scene in um, Moonraker. Moonraker. Yes, you got the G-force thing with the. His face starts moving, and but it, just before this, um, Griffin had had a vision of it happening, hadn't he? A flash forward. Yeah, yeah. and it it is incredible. It is quite extraordinary. I think that whole scene is. How? What kind of budget have they got? How do they do this? Well, pretty low. But again, that means your your heart's in your mouth, somewhat thinking. Yeah. How, how much safety, uh, your health and safety, was going on? With this? <laughs> um, yeah, that brings me on to a couple of things. We mentioned Connor, which maybe you should have mentioned earlier. He's kind of like Griffin's the driving force here, but Connor's meant to be the sort of the big character, isn't he? Mm. I was a little bit irritated that he turns up with no. There's no reason to us to care about him uh, he's vanished at the beginning of the film he comes back after 50 odd days out in the wilderness people have given him up for dead 
He comes back with this kind of, uh, if people remember the Irish group Clannad, which is where Enya, Enya started. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly the Gregorian chants give way to all this Connor stuff, and it's clear he's meant to be something really special. Yeah. And when he turns up, he looks kind of psychotic. He's got very dead eyes and this fixed grin, and he's been presented to us as this heroic character, but he hasn't earned my um, my respect. <laughs> I think he he looked a lot uh, weirdly like Michael Bean uh, Hicks in mm. uh, Aliens. Um, Unlike Sean Bean, because there's that little yeah, I guess. there is that little group because one of them, the guy with the afro, the sort of blonde <laughs> afro, looks a little oh, bit like Northern Sean, guy with one arm. Is a mixture of Sean Bean and I don't know if you remember Charlie Chuck, the comedian from yeah. the nineties. Charlie Chuck, oh but God, they are man. a good little selection of faces he's got there. Mm. There's those two guys. Um, there's the guy who looks like Ted Raimi. Sam Raimi's brother from uh, Xena, I think. He, yeah. he looks like he should be wearing glasses, but obviously it's medieval, so he doesn't. But he's just got those very oh, the, eyes. the guy is quite religious, isn't yeah. he? Martin. Yes. I think he's called Martin. Um, but like you say, the dialogue is quite <laughs> difficult to grab hold of. You just know the faces. And finally, the thankless task of the useless gut bucket. Ulf. Ulf. Yeah, <laughs> great name. He's really fat, and I don't know why they've taken him along because it makes he makes it clear the character himself very early on that he's not really someone who likes adventures and unpredictability yeah and as soon as they get to um new zealand he's he's, he's not happy being there is he no he causes a few problems early on doesn't he trying to cross the road i mean going road. back like we say uh griffin's griffin's a major character here he has flash forwards and visions at the beginning which are in color and that happens throughout it even that scene with the train we, we have some kind of premonition of it mm. uh, and it means that it does play quite fast and loose with narrative yeah I, I suppose because you're always you get lulled into this um, sense of the visions of what what's ultimately mm -hmm. is going to happen and then as as the story progresses you find not only do the people who he's with start questioning his visions but he does because mm -hmm. he's not sure about them and I think that's uh, that's uh, a sort of get-out clause for the writer in that he can play around with how how you can perceive it, how the viewer can perceive it, whether, or is this really happening in yeah. that way, or is this really happening? Because this is a whole other point of the film. Um, obviously, something bizarre happens in these medieval characters somehow tunnel through to the present day. When they get there and meet these really lovely guys don't they <laughs> yeah. the sort of uh, steel forgers who's um, they, they work at a foundry Smithy. yeah who's who's it's their last day they're getting made redundant it's quite a timely film I suppose even though it was made over 20 years ago you are thinking well hold on how did this happen how did they go through time and how mm. when they get there the, the, the cross or the spike as they call it I think actually fits this um, mould that they have already and the modern day blacksmiths are quite amazed by this we're never told how this has happened and it does it's like at the start of the film you're thinking okay you know the black death was um, actually happened the idea that you're going to fend it off by making a tribute to god is obviously nonsense yeah but then in the context of the film you're thinking oh okay in this world those rules actually do work somehow maybe uh, we're never given an explanation for how this is happening but it's clearly something supernatural and otherworldly is going on if I started questioning too much why they're there then it's a sort of collapse mm -hmm. it collapsed for me I like the fact that it just sort of it okay they're in these they're in these sewers now and uh, 
Connor recognizes oh the the you know these Connor. these things under, <laughs> underneath the cities where all the shit goes basically and wow okay and then yeah there's cars everywhere yeah there's that focus that they've got that uh that belief which is possibly a metaphor you know the, for the whole film it's about having belief in something so yeah no I mean like I say I I, I saw Map of the Human Heart the cinema a long time ago but yeah I did so enjoy uh, it's, it's something you really put your finger on here it's a bizarre film but it, it's unspectacular but that's a good thing yeah it, it doesn't try and you know bowl you over <laughs> with, uh, with it's exposition just and stuff it's it just gets yeah. on with it and there's no point to it other than well there's yeah. no pretense about it that yeah. it's there's no pretense yeah. absolutely Th- that's what I was like I said I was so happy when I read that um, interview or whatever with Vincent Ward who was like well there is nothing other than what it is. It yeah. is what it is. I think originally he wanted it to be a comedy of some sort. Yeah, as it, as it a, went a, on, a bawdy comedy. I think he described fact, it. You'll know this with your French wife. <laughs> Will I? What, what's that really popular? Is it Le Visiteurs or something? Or Le Visiteur with, with, with John Reno. Reno. Isn't that again Christine kind Clavier. of medieval knights coming into the present yeah, day or yeah, something? Yeah, that's great though. That it's is the, very it's the fish out of water thing. Yeah, <laughs> but he did something which uh, transcends that. I think. Ah, yeah. Was, You're sounding cagey. Yeah, because uh, I'm sounding pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of foie gras stuff. <laughs> feel. No money. The church is poor. Show twenty three in the can. Literally. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with us. Yeah, hope, hope you've enjoyed it. And the sound effects in the background. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let's say great if you can get in touch with us. Um, and I should really, after all this time, know the things off the top of my head. Do you want me to? I can do them all really quickly. Do it. Uh, at Midnight Video on Twitter. Facebook is Midnight Video. Midnight Video at hotmail.co.uk. Midnight video.com. That's pretty much it. That's all we're about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just whipping through that because we can't whip through the, uh, the reviews anymore. No. Um. <laughs> We're okay. wallowing in our own feces. <laughs> we well, spilt beer all over your jeans halfway through that for various reasons. Mm. Um, check out Phil's new film quiz. <gasps> yeah, do that. I'll put a link to that on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, just I always head to the website. It's going to rack your brains. Hopefully, yeah. I think there's some good ones in there this time. Oh yeah, no, there was there, there was, was last time, but well, that yeah. Back at a now mythical meeting at Weatherspoons before this. No, there was certainly stuff I was saying, what the hell was that from? You know, it's bizarre looking films there. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to mention a drink meetup, but actually, that will be by the time this goes up, we'll actually be sitting in the pub. Um, Phil will have beer all down his jeans again. I'll have it everywhere. Yeah, you're not going to change those jeans for the next. Uh, Might next as well. <laughs> but there's no point now, is there? I'm just saturated. Uh, wallowing in your own. <laughs> in a hole of your own digging yep thanks for joining us see you next time cheerio bye tatty bye come here guitar come off that wall now what's it going to be a song about me (laughs) why not I'm a lonely man in a lonely room Mighty low on the seventh floor 
For bare walls the color of doom And the ceiling that's peeling all over the floor But we are having a party <laughs> Yes, a party We are having a party Myself and I I pushed him a couple times today as I walked through and I think he looked at me like he wants to fight me.